Mark chapter 12, as we make our way through verse by verse, the Gospel of Mark. It is Passion Week in in the Gospel of Mark. It is the week leading up to what we now call Easter. For them, it was the Passover, the time uh, that pilgrims, religious pilgrims from from the uh, nation of Israel would come from all over the place uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate this one of three required feasts for them. Their lambs would be sacrificed. They would remember coming out of Egypt, having been in bondage, having put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lintels and, and being saved from the death of the firstborn. And just a side note, uh, for those of you that are interested and want to know more about where uh, the Passover comes from, what it means on Wednesday nights, we're studying through the Old Testament, and we happen to be in uh, the part of Exodus that describes the initial event, the Passover. So you can kind of, these, these two uh, tracks are crossing here, what we're reading in the gospel and what we're reading in the Old Testament. So I would highly suggest that if you have the time and the ability to come on out Wednesday night and read with us the Passover uh, for the first time, uh, maybe for the first time reading it, but certainly for the first time it was celebrated and established. So Jesus is just days away from being crucified, and rather than uh, working on his bucket list, rather than you know climbing Everest or scuba diving or laying on the beach or doing those things, he is giving his last moments to teaching, to passing on the truth about God, the truth about religion, so to speak, the truth about himself, to those that he's with in the temple area. He has been questioned by the various religious groups. He's been questioned about taxes. He's been questioned about resurrection. He's been questioned about the greatest commandment. And now he gets a chance to question them. And that's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 35. After all of their questionings of him and his answers, now he says to them, verse 35 says, Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple... How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So the common people, as opposed to the religious leaders who were not hearing him gladly, but the, the common people did, they were interested in the fact and excited by the fact that Jesus was really stumping the experts. The scribes that he's speaking to here, or speaking about here, they were the absolute unquestioned authority on all things biblical. They knew the word of God. They even claimed to have all of the understanding and all the interpretation of God's word. And they, would be, they were the teachers of the, the things of God. And so as he's teaching in the temple, he asks them this simple question, the the leaders and and the people there. He says, how is it that the scribes, or literally in what way or in what sense is it that the scribes teach or say that the Christ is the son of David? So first thing you have to know is that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. We call him Jesus Christ, and so that's his first, like I'm Steve Fedden, and he's Jesus Christ. And Christ is not his last name, it's a title. The word Christ that we see here, it's the Greek word Christos, transliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means the anointed one. And what does that speak of? The anointed one means the king. 
Because in the Old Testament times, when someone became a king in Israel, they would be anointed with oil as a demonstration, as sort of a ceremony, recognizing that they're now becoming the king. That happened with Saul, happened with David. And this is uh, what is going to happen. This is what the word Christ means. And it's used with the definite article, the Christ, speaking about not just any king, the king that was going to and expected to lead Israel uh, to regain their own identity, their own nationality. Um, this was the what they were hoping for, a very human and natural leader. That would be uh, a descendant of the King David, the greatest king of Israel. So does that make sense? This is, so they said it when it was very commonly understood that the son of David was a messianic term. Speaking of, their future king, the king that they were expecting, would be a, a physical descendant of David. His, David would be this guy's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. And so we see the people, um, as Jesus was coming in, talking about blessed is the kingdom of our father David. That was in chapter 11 of Mark. We see blind Bartimaeus, the blind man that was healed by Jesus. He cries out to Jesus saying, son of David, have mercy on me. Calls him by that same name. I'll read to you briefly from 2 Corinthians, excuse me, not, not 2 Corinthians, 2 uh, Samuel chapter 7. This is why they were rightly expecting that the descendant of, of David would be the future king. This is what God says in 2 Samuel. Says, says it to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers after you die, I will set up your seed after you. In other words, your descendants, your people that come from you, your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So there's going to be a future king, going to come from you, and he's going to have the kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I, God says, will be his father, and he shall be my son. So this is the, the Davidic covenant, you could say. This is the promise God made to David to continue on the kingly line through him. So it was very common that he was understood to be, the, the Messiah would be a physical descendant, a human descendant of David. And that's understood. But Jesus says there's something funny you experts have overlooked or missed. How is it that the scribes say he's going to be in the son of David? He doesn't give them a chance to answer. He says, here's why I ask. Look at the next verse. For David himself said by the Holy Spirit. So there is an interesting reference Jesus makes to the fact that Scripture is inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit. And not just New Testament Scripture, Old Testament. This is Psalm 110, verse 1, being quoted. And, and Jesus says, David himself, when he wrote this, was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of God. And this is what he wrote in Psalm 110. The Lord... Now notice, that in, probably in your Bible, that's in all capital letters. That's a representation of the proper name of God, Yahweh. So the Yahweh, or the I Am, said to my Lord, now that's different, that's capital L, small o-r-d, right? That's a title, it's the Hebrew word Adonai. So Yahweh said to my Adonai, which means Lord, Master, or Father. Hang with me. I know this is a little bit confusing, but we'll get there. So Yahweh said, David writes, to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Speaking about his conquering, his enemies. 
They understood Psalm 110 was a psalm about the Messiah, the, Messiah, the coming king. Uh, Adonai, again, means Lord, Master, or Father. So how is it that David, if the Messiah is his son, calls him Master? I mean, what father, in it, especially in the patriarchal society of the Jewish world and the Old Testament world, how would a, a father would never call his son Master? Does that make sense? So, yes, in a sense, he's human from David's lineage, but he's also greater than David. He's also David's, he's not just David's son, he's David's master. And that's what Jesus says, therefore, David himself calls him Lord, how then is he his son? And they go, oh, we don't know. What they would have had to admit, what they would have to recognize, is that the the Messiah that they were expecting was not just human, but was also divine that David had both come from the Messiah and then the Messiah would come from David. Does that make sense? At least somewhat. So what Jesus is showing them is that the true Messiah, the true Savior they're looking for, will be both human and divine because he is making claims of divinity himself and he's proving that scripturally for them to see, if they're willing to see it. So the common people heard this gladly. They were excited. Uh, They were impressed by what he was saying. So, verse 38, while he's talking about the scribes, uh, then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So he stumps them in his teaching, and then, hey guys, while we're talking about the teaching of the scribes, let me, let's talk about also the, the life of the scribes. Let's talk about the religion of the scribes. And he starts out his sentence with the word beware. It just means to see, uh, but they would see the scribes all the time. They would always be in and around the temple, so it's not just see to look at, it's see, hey, consider, consider them. He's pointing them out as an example. Hey, take a look. And, and your parents have done that, especially the young folks in here. Your, your parents might do that. You know, take a look at that person over there. Take a look at that, that person and how they're living. And you don't want to be like that. So this is not beware in terms of they're not dangerous to the people physically. They're not, you know, coming after them to attack them physically and, and beat them up. You know, that, that's not the kind of beware. The beware is a religious or a spiritual beware. Don't be influenced by them, and don't be impressed with them. Why is that? Well, see, the scribes had done these things that Matthew talks about, a whole chapter Matthew spends talking about the life of hypocrisy, the outward religion of the scribes and the religious leaders of that day. So maybe if you've been to church before, or maybe you've had an experience where you see, you know, you just said, well, you know, there's something... I just, there's something wrong with it. Like church is so much about the outward and it just seems like everybody's putting on a mask and putting on a show and and maybe you've rejected church for years because of that. And I'll tell you, that's the kind of church Jesus rejects too. So you're not alone if you feel that way. I feel that way. I like when Jesus says these things because I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's right. The scribes would wear these long robes. Now the robes were their uniform and it was meant to be worn while they were at work. But... The robes also told people that they were special. 
And it's not a problem that they wore this uniform. The problem is they started wearing it all the time so everybody would notice that they were important. You see, for them, it was all about the outward. It was all about how I look and what they loved. And you can write this, circle this whole section and write next to it, loving public recognition. Because you're going to serve the Lord. I hope you do. And you should. And there are some times when you do things, I can't tell you how many things that get done around here. You would never know they're happening. There's so many people that serve in this church and they do things that you would never know they were doing them until they stopped doing them. Then you'd wonder, hey, why are the toilets such a mess around here? You don't think because you don't know because the person doesn't walk around going, I clean the toilets. You know, bow to me. You know, or, hey, I'm the pastor. Bow to me. I don't... There's, it's easy to get caught up in wanting to be recognized and wanting to get public attention and people to go, ooh and ah, about you. So their clothing was a way they would draw attention to themselves. Now again, just a, a, a small application here for you and I. You may not be wearing priestly robes, but you may be wearing something from a high-end store. Now, you may be wearing that because you like those clothes, but you may be wearing it because you like that label. And you like what that label says about you, and what you, like, you like what that label tells other people about you. Now, I have a, a jacket that you don't often see me wear, because I don't wear it that often. It was given to me by a guy that, that I used to know. He'd come over to my house one day, and he's carrying this jacket. It's a beautiful leather polo jacket. Now, any of you who have been in the mall and been through the polo, like, I can't afford anything in that section, let alone a, this jacket, probably a four or $500 jacket. I mean, it is that soft leather, nice. I mean, it's beautiful. And it's got the little horse with the mallet right there that says, I'm a man of substance, you know. But I don't wear it because people, I would wear it and people don't know that it was a gift. The guy said, you know, it's too small for me or it's too, it's too big for me. Do you want it? And I'm like, let me try it on. I put it on like, oh yeah, this, this is nice. So I, so I have this jacket, but I don't wear it because you would see me wearing it and go, oh, Steve, pastoral life is treating you pretty good, isn't it? Like, ah, it's a gift. I don't, someone gave it to me. But so you can, we can wear clothes to draw attention to ourselves. And that can be the kind of clothes we wear. You can be caught up in labels so that you come to church and you want people to see you. We're not here to see you. We're here to see God. So you should wear, dress in such a way that you disappear. That's always been my goal as a pastor, uh, just to dress. I want to dress and be middle of the road. I don't want to be noticed. I don't want to be... But now, now, so you might go the other direction. You can sin in the other direction. You say, well, I don't want to be noticed, so I'll not cut my hair. I'll not shave. I'll not put on deodorant. We can notice you if you're too ugly, too. <laughs> don't be too ugly. Don't be too pretty. You know, just be, middle of the beat disappear so that we can all not focus on you but focus on God. And so your clothes, you can wear clothes, you know, modesty. The biblical, the biblical rule is modesty. Dress in such a way that people don't notice you. And for the girls, you know, you be careful with what you wear that you're not drawing attention to yourself. Guys, watch same thing um, so that we can all just be focused on who we're supposed to focus on and that's the Lord. So that's the scribes. They would wear these long robes. Not only that, they loved greetings in the marketplaces. So people would see them in, down at the mall or at Food Lion, and they would have their long robes on in the frozen food section. Oh, 
It's Pastor Steve. Hey, hey, pa- Reverend, how are you today? Hello, Reverend, which means the revered one. Rabbi, which is their, their title, means my great one. So every time they said, oh, hello, Rabbi, they would say, hello, my great one. Oh, yes, hi, blessings to you, blessings to you. And it's not, you know, using a title is not wrong. What was wrong was that they loved it. They sought after, they wanted people. You know, maybe you have a title, or maybe you got some letters that took you a lot of time to get and a lot of money to get after your name. And maybe you're the kind of person that feels like, you know what, you better call me by that. If, if you don't call me doctor then I'm upset with you because I want to be recognized for what I've accomplished. Again, not wrong to accomplish those things, but what may be wrong is the heart behind needing people, other people, to recognize how great you really are because you're really not that great. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. I'm sorry. But they were all about having their ego stroked. That's what they were about. And they were using God and the things of God to get their ego stroked. And Jesus says that is wrong. So they love the greetings in the marketplaces. They love the best seats in the synagogue and the best places at the feast. They just love to be recognized. And meanwhile, so they wanted everybody to recognize them as important and special and wealthy and all those things. And meanwhile, they were devouring, verse 40 says, they were devouring widows' houses and for a pretense making long prayers. So the the scribes were the lawyers of the day. So any legal things that had to happen, they were involved. They would write up legal documents. If a woman uh, was left with an inheritance and she didn't have a a son to take over the the family, the father had died, and then the the scribes would come and help draw up the documents for what would happen with her inheritance. Now the scribes were uh, supposed to be earning their own way by having a trade. They wouldn't live off of the donations to the temple. They would have a trade and support themselves. But they figured out that they could abuse and use widows who were grieving and hurting and take advantage of them to get their money. And so they would go in and they would tell the widows just how much of a reward there would be in heaven for them if they would contribute to the cushy life of one of the religious leaders. And they, oh, really? God likes that? Oh, okay. And they would sign over their whole inheritance to the temple of which the scribes would get their cut. And just you just go, oh. But you see that happen today. And I, I don't, I'm not going to name names, but you can watch some TV evangelists and they're wearing all the glitz and the glamour. And tell, you know, if you really want to be blessed, then you need to give to our ministry. Well, if your ministry was blessed, you wouldn't need us to give to your ministry. I mean, you just got to think about this stuff. So, but it's a way to take advantage of people's desire, especially ladies. Your desire is to be generous and to support the work of God, and you can be very vulnerable to people that are just charlatans taking advantage of God's people. And so the scribes, that's what they were. The word pretense, by the way, it's from a, a word that means to appear before. So here's how it looks before you. Here, I'm making something to look like something it's not. We get the word pretend from the word pretense and pretentious. So they were pretending. They'd use long prayers. They weren't talking to God. They were talking to this poor widow, encouraging her in their prayer to give to them. They were greedy. And so they'd say, oh, Lord, I'm so thankful that this poor widow 
is going to be blessed by you by giving all of her money to the ease of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And, and they would just pray that way, and it was manipulative in their prayer. When you pray, when you pray, and you should pray, remember, when you pray, you are talking to God, not to man. It's not the time to teach others the doctrine you know. You know the, the, Lord, we know that, the, uh, that you're coming, that the rapture happens at this time. You know, God knows when the rapture happens. You don't have to teach us your doctrine on the rapture in your prayer. Talk to God. And so you have to think, when you pray, you have to engage your brain and think about, what am I saying? Who, does it sound like I'm talking to people or does it sound like I'm talking to God? And by the way, the longer their prayer, the better it sounded. And they would pretend, for a pretense, they would make long prayers. Wow, did you hear that guy pray? I mean, he prays for a long time. Don't be impressed. Don't be intimidated. That's, what, that's what's being said here. For, that was just pretend. You, don't, you, don't you love it when you really hear a person pray from their heart? When you just pray, Lord, I need you. I mean, some of the best prayers... Peter, when he's sinking in the water, he's walking on water, he starts to sink, and what's his prayer? Lord, help me. He doesn't say, oh, Lord of the universe, prayeth I that thou helpeth me to not sinketh. You know, you, like, who are you talking to? Nobody talks like that. We don't talk like that. My kids don't come up to me when they want something, when they need something, when they want to talk to me. Oh, Father. Your children are hungry. <laughs> we would likest ice cream. You know? <laughs> Just what I'm saying is be real before God. He knows the, every word before it even leaves your tongue. He knows your thoughts. Read Psalm 139. He knows your thoughts before you even thunk them. So be real before God. And why not be influenced by them? Why not be impressed with them? Because the last verse tells us these will receive greater condemnation. Hey, in this world, in this life, before human eyes, with their pretending, they may receive greater recognition. And you have to know this because when you see people getting recognition, it can easily make you jealous. And you begin to say, well, I want people to know what I do around here. I mean, I do all these things and nobody notices me. And then you wait till Pastor Steve is walking by and you grab the broom and start sweeping up. Don't do that. Don't do, don't do that because it's outward. So he says, look, if you follow them and they're going to receive a greater condemnation, they're going to be judged more harshly because they're pretending, because they're using God to take advantage of people when they should know better. If you follow them, what are you going to get? You're gonna, you will, look, be careful who you follow you'll end up where they end up. It's just a natural law of being a follower. If the blind leads the blind and the blind falls into a ditch, then where do those following them fall into? Where do, those, they, where do they go? They fall into a ditch. So be very careful of who you're aligning your life after, about whose example you're following. Because think about where are they going? Where will they end up? Because that's where you'll end up too. Kids, I say this especially to the youth that are around the edges of the, the room here. You have to also be very careful about the example you follow. Are, that person you're following, you're impressed because they get a lot of, they're popular at school. People are impressed by them. The clothes they wear, they got the latest fashion. The question you have to ask yourself is where are they going to end up? Because that's where you'll end up if you follow them. For these guys, 
Jesus telling his disciples, don't be too impressed. They're going to receive a greater condemnation. You just do what I tell you. Just live for me. Don't worry about the outward. And then since he's speaking about the widow's houses being devoured by these scribes, now they move in verse 41. They move to the inner, uh, to a, a more interior area of the temple. The temple had a number of courts. And the outer court that Jesus has been in is the court of the Gentiles. That's the farthest that a non-Jew could come. Then the next inward court is the court of the women. And no Gentile could go in there. And in the court of the women was where the treasury was. And the treasury is where people would come to pay their temple taxes, to, pay their, um, to give their free will offerings to God. And this place called the treasury that Jesus mentions next is, uh, has uh, a series of 13 chests, uh, 13 boxes, or really they're trumpet-shaped receptacles that you would put your money in when you wanted to go in and when you had to pay your, your temple tax and when you, had to, you wanted to just give something to God. You know, I, David in the Old Testament, he's just sitting, kicking back in his, in his house and he goes, man, God, like, I'm so blessed. I want to do something for you. And he wants to build God the temple. And God says, no, that's great. I appreciate it, but Solomon's going to build my temple. But just that heart behind David is kicking back in his own house, looking around, going, man, I am so blessed. I need to do something for God. So he, he, there's this desire in a person's life that says, you know, God has been so good to me that I want to give back something of what he's done, just to recognize and acknowledge that God has been good, that all that I have is his. So that's where you would go. So there are seven of these receptacles for the taxes, and six of them were for free will offerings. And each one was labeled, like if you wanted to give toward the wood for the burnt offerings, you'd put it there. If you wanted to contribute toward the incense, you could put it there. And all the things were labeled, and that's where you would go to give your offering. So that's where Jesus sets up camp. He comes into this inner court and he's sitting around the treasury. It's like sitting across from the offering box. And he's, uh, he sits and he says, uh, now Jesus sat opposite verse 21 of the treasury and he saw how, notice that, he saw how the people put money into the treasury. And there were all kinds of people. It's the Passover. So all kinds of people are there to worship. And so there's lots of people coming into the treasury to make a contribution to God, to to the work of God, to his kingdom, to the temple upkeep, to the work of the priests and those kind of things. And so he's watching not what they give, although that's important. He's watching how they give. And that's important, even more important. So there were the poor that were giving and then there were the rich that were giving. Look at the next part. It says, and many who were rich put in much. Hey, he acknowledges that there's were, there were rich people, the aristocrats, those that were people of means, and they were putting a lot. Now, they didn't have paper money like we do. They had coinage. And so these trumpets were such that when people would go in and give, you'd pour out, like you'd come in with your bucket. You know, like you see people at Food Line, they're coming to that coin machine there, they count your money for you. You dump that stuff in there, it makes a lot of noise. Or maybe you've been to a casino and, and played the, the one-armed bandit there, or you, you've watched on TV. Let's go with that. We've watched on TV. You've heard other people talk about these things. And there's the, you know, you see their faces. And if you go into the, if you've ever been to a casino, I mean, you see the faces on people and just sitting there in front of that slot machine. And just, it's like a zombie. And then all of a sudden, somebody hits the jackpot or a partial jackpot. And all, and all, the lights are going off and the coins are just hitting that metal tray. You think that's an accident? It, you think there's an accent that they're not like little padded trays that don't make any noise? 
It's made to draw attention. So you go, oh, he's the jackpot. I'm next, you know, where the quarter's in. But it's made to make noise. And that's how it was in the temple. The rich would come in with their pile of coins, and they would just start dumping them in, and everybody would hear and would go, whoa, look how much Abe is giving. Look how much Irving is giving. I mean, there's a lot of money because it would make a lot of noise, and they would draw a lot of attention to themselves when they gave. And he's acknowledged, they, they, did, they put in much. There was, they were giving a lot. It's true. You can't deny that. But verse 42 says, Then one poor widow came. Of all the people coming and giving, all the wealthy, Jesus' attention is drawn to one. We don't know her name. We don't know how long she's been a widow. But we know by being a widow, she has no means of supporting herself. She is dependent on others. Uh, she, she is, uh, the Bible tells us right here, she is impoverished, literally impoverished. And the first thing that strikes me is that she came. She came to the treasury. She came to offer something to her God, the God whom she loved, the God whom she trusted. Can you imagine the conversation in her head? I know for it, if it's us, I mean, she comes bring these two mites, basically a portion of a penny, a fraction of a penny relative to the value of her day. These are the smallest coins you can bring. She's got two of them. That's all she's got. And she shows up, and that blows my mind. If anybody could have said, well, look, I'm poor. What do I have to give to God? I mean, that's for people that have things. That's for people that have extra to give to God. I'm just barely getting by. I certainly can't afford to give. Couldn't she have said that? I mean, maybe the others were very proudly walking up and dumping in theirs. She was probably embarrassed. Uh, some of you, I told the story, but there, there's enough new people here. I'll tell it again. Uh, of, of my giving fiasco, having attended a church on a Sunday afternoon, a special service held at a local church. A couple of friends of mine were speaking. It was a, an interdenominational service at a church I don't usually attend, and I didn't know how things work. I mean, we don't even pass a plate around here. So I, they take an offering. Now, I come from church. I don't have any cash on me. Well, what I find out is that the way they do the offering in that church is the offering boxes are up front where everybody can see, and they dismiss you row by row to come down in front and put your offering in front uh, in front of everybody. And I'm thinking, I start to sweat. I've got no money. I don't even have two mites. So I'm like, what do I do? You know, do I, I can't just sit here. That looks stupid. You know, so I get up and I go down. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I, mean, I was freaking out. So I reached into my pocket and I didn't have anything in there, but I pretended. So I said, well, I'm just going to do an air giving, you know, like, I just, that's what I did. I was so embarrassed. Like, I didn't know what to do. So I walked by, and I'm just like walking by the thing. I'm like, like maybe nobody will notice that there was nothing there in my hand. So the rich were coming by and getting, the poor, those that didn't have anything, I imagine she was very embarrassed as everybody else's money was going, ting, 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 you know, the lottery's going. And this poor woman, who gets up enough courage to go there in the first place, and when she gives, it's ding, ding, that's it. <laughs> she barely can give anything, woman, you know. I can't count for anything. What, what, what dent could that make in any work of God? Not like us who are giving so much. And so she gives two mites. And, and what this tells me is, is number one, that uh, anyone can give. 
Anyone can give. And everyone should give. Even if you think it's insignificant. Look, things like ministry happens because people give money. It is, is a terrible master, but it's a great servant. And everything that we get to do, the support of all the things, the ministries that we have is because people gave. And you think it's because all the people giving these great big contributions, and if you can only give a little bit, it's really insignificant. But remember, it's not between you and us. It's between you and God. What you give, you think it's little, but to God it can be very significant. Now, it's a choice. And she, who would have faulted her for giving one and keeping one? I mean, she's got two coins. She could have easily said, well, I'll give 50%. Right? Would you have faulted her for that? I mean, at 50%, she's outdoing everybody in this room, I would imagine. But she gives both. She gives 100%. Now, if that was me, the conversation I'm having on the way up there is like, I'm going, okay, God, here, no, 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 I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. How am I going to live? Like, like, this is all the money I have, God. How can I, how can I give it? What's going to happen to me if I give all this? They said, no, okay, God, I know you, I know this is, this is going to be useful, and I know this is, shows my love for you, and so, I mean, I don't know if she had that conversation in her mind about, like, I don't know what's coming, I don't know how I'm going to eat tomorrow, but Lord, I'm going to trust you. And when you give like that, when you give and the rule here is sacrificially. It puts you in a place to trust the Lord and for him to show himself faithful on your behalf. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. She comes and she throws in, she just tosses in too much. She was probably running by, didn't want to be noticed. So this is what you call a teachable moment. So he called his disciples to himself and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. So notice that and circle the word more. So we calculate things on, on a very human logical level. More is more and less is less, right? Right. I mean, that's a, it makes sense. So, and it's not coincident that we're I'm teaching about this on the day that your giving statements are prepared. And all of the giving statements are out there and, and for you to pick up. Don't forget to pick those up. But if we could, if we could distribute the giving statements, if we could put on a, in a document the giving statements for Calvary Chapel Fluvanna, distribute that among the church, what if it came into your email box and you saw, well, here's the CCF giving record. Oh, there's the Feddens. You know, there's the Hodges. And you could see what everybody gave. That wouldn't tell you the whole story, would it? Because you'd be tempted to say, whoa, look at this person. They gave a lot. They gave like $20,000 to the church last year. And this person, they only gave 50 bucks. Wow, we know who the greater giver is there. Wait a second. Don't be so fast. What would be more accurate would be if we gave you a keeping statement. It's not what you give that measures your giving. It's not how much. It's what you keep. It's the sacrifice it took to give it. That person who gave 25 cents a quarter in that box today that's barely getting by, maybe they're homeless, maybe they've been out of work for a long time, maybe the fact that they're willing to give something that's going to cost them, because they know, you know, some of it, you can just make it, you'll make it next week. But the fact that they're willing to give that says a lot about them, doesn't it? The sacrifice it costs. Because others that gave 20000 well, if you're like Bill Gates, 
$20,000 is nothing. Matter of fact, just so you know, according to God's economy, you can outgive Bill Gates. Now, he gives billions, but he's also got billions. This interests me. Bill Gates, probably worth about 70, I think, billion dollars. He's the richest man in the world. He earned 11.5, catch this, billion dollars last year. 11.5 billion. Well, let's break that down a little farther. That works out to be $33.3 million a day. Wow. Oh, it gets worse. $1.3 million an hour. That's just slightly over minimum wage. $23,000 a minute. So during this church service, Bill Gates would have made just over uh, $1,700,000. Matter of fact, one article said it's not even worth his time to bend over to pick up a $100 bill off the ground because he makes about $115 a second. But he also gives very generously. He also gives very generously. So the question isn't how much should you give. The question is how much should I keep? And endeavoring to live a life of simplicity so that you are free to to exemplify and to live generosity. I mean, it is nothing new that giving is part of a life that is happy, that is joyful. People that give are happy. They've done research after research after research. Uh, One article I read says, start giving your money in time. This is a brand new article uh, from this, this month. New research shows you'll be happier for it. Americans who describe themselves as very happy volunteer an average of 5.8 hours a month. Those who are unhappy volunteer an average of 0.6, just a little over half an hour. And on and on their findings go. But the interesting thing was, as the interviewer was asking questions of the author of this book called The Paradox of Generosity, The interviewer said, so if that's true, and we all know it's true, why don't more people exercise generosity? Why don't people give? And he said, it's because they're afraid. They're afraid that if they give, that they'll go without, that they won't have. And that's why I want to show you the principle, because you've probably grown up, or at least you've heard, especially if church is in the middle of building funds, to tithe. And I'm here to tell you, more definitively than ever, that tithing is not a principle extended to the body of Christ, to the church. And I know some of you, that whoa, that's radical, Steve. Remember, we're looking at a widow who gave not 10%, 100%. So here's, here's the principle. You marked it, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, go there. Because you can read through the entirety of the New Testament, and there are places in the, in the epistles where Paul or one of the other disciples talks about money and giving and generosity. And not one time is the church told to tithe. So what is the principle? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just one chapter 4, Paul is talking about taking up a collection for some churches that were in trouble. They were going through some some difficult times. Uh, They needed help. 
And he talks about the generosity of this church in Macedonia. Verse 2 of chapter 8 says, In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty. Look at those two things hand in hand. The abundance of their joy and poverty. See, we think money makes us happy. We know that that's not true. We've come to learn and we know that once your basic needs are met, no more, no, any more money doesn't increase your happiness. So just know, the Bible tells us that, you know that, doesn't increase your happiness. Joy has got to come from somewhere else besides money for you, otherwise you're in big, big trouble. So, great trial of affliction, uh, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. That's the first principle about giving It comes from a willing heart. Freely from a willing heart. Not because you're obligated to, not because you're coerced to, not because you're manipulated to, but because you want to. You give because you recognize what God has done for you. You recognize He owns it all anyway. You recognize that the harder you try to hold on to it, the less you can keep it. And you say, God, you've been so good to my family. And and you give. So they were freely willing. I didn't have to coerce them. And they implored us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now go over to chapter 9. Here's the second principle. The first one is giving should be freely uh, from a willing heart. The second one is, verse 6 says, But this I say, I say to you, Calvary Chapel Fluvanna, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, this isn't about gardening. It's about giving. But it's a gardening example because you have to understand. The principle is not tithing. The principle is reaping and sowing. Because 10% for Bill Gates, 10% of $33 billion, like I'm not a mathematician, or excuse me, 10% of $11 billion, you know, could you live on $9 billion a year? Well, let's say you really had to skimp. Could you live on a billion a year? I mean, you're really at the bottom. See, it's all relative. Maybe for someone in here who's very wealthy, maybe 10%, you don't feel that. You still got all the stuff you want. You have no, there's no sacrifice in that. But for others, maybe a percentage is all you can afford. It's all you can do. You know, because you say, well, you know, I, I, can't, I, I can't really afford to give. I can't, but Steve, I'd love to give, but we just can't afford it. You know, my cable bill has gone up. Aqua keeps raising their prices. You know, electricity is what it is. And man, my cell phone died and, and my, I need more data. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's just what you choose. But that's the point. You say, God, I love you more than. Fill in the blank. Sacrifice always says I love you. Think about that in terms of a marriage, a relationship. If I've got something I want to do, I've got something planned. Man, I really, you know, you guys know me. I love to go out and ride my bike. I just like to get out on the road, put my headphones in. Don't tell anybody I said that. Please don't hit me. Uh, I get out and I ride my bike. I put in some pumping Christian music and I just worship and ride. And I love that. But let's say my wife had something really important. And I, and I had my bike ride planned, and, but she's got this thing. And, and, and I go, okay, 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 I'm going to give that up and do what you need me to do. That says to her, I love you 
more than my bike. I love you more than myself. That sacrifice is what says to her, I love you more than. Does that make sense? The widow saying, I love you more than. Reaping and sowing, if you plant one seed, how many plants do you get? The first service struggled with this. I think you guys are smarter. One seed equals one plant, right? And one plant will give you, now I'm no agriculturalist, but one plant will give you a number of tomatoes, more than one, right? Unless you're me, in which case that's negotiable. Uh, but you, you, know, you get back what you give out. But see, you have to let go of that seed. That seed won't give you any plants if it's in your hand, will it? You've got to say, in the ground you go. And then you watch it. And it comes back and you get 12 tomatoes. And maybe you eat a few and you share some. Now what is it? Wow, look at that. I gave it away. I had to give it out of my hand. But then it came back to me in fruitfulness. What if I planted two seeds? I'd have double the amount that came in. Instead of having 12 tomatoes, I'd have 24. What if I planted three seeds? That would give me not 12, not 24, but 36 tomatoes. I'd see it's, it's, it's going up. So this is the law of reaping and sowing, and that's how it works with you financially. So the question isn't how much do you want to give. The question is how much do you want to be a giver? Because the fear you have is that somehow, if I give, I will have to go without, that God will somehow, I'll be in need all my life, and I'll never have anything. But you watch God at work. He promises you, look again, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Duh. And he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Verse 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart. doesn't say so let each one tithe. It says so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. When you understand the joy of reaping and sowing, when you see that your money can influence people's lives, when you see what it does to help the kingdom of God, when you see how God brings that back to you, it's, it, you, you can't wait. You're like, man, honey, give me the checkbook. You know, it's, it's the first Sunday. I'm writing my check. And you just love to give because you see what God does. But as long as you stay greedy, you'll never see it. So you have, it's, giving is one of those works of faith. It comes from faith. And so, in, and just remember in God's economy, it's not a dollar for dollar. It's, are you given willingly? Are you given sacrificially? How much love was there? How much cost was there to you in the giving? Surely I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance. Didn't touch their lives, didn't affect their way of living. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. That woman gets it. And I am going to take care of her. I'm going to take care of her. God will not leave you stranded. I promise you. It's the one place in the Bible God says, test me. Go ahead, try it. He wants you to be whole. He doesn't need your money. But he knows that you need to give so that greediness and money don't become an idol in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for what you're teaching us here for restructuring our way of thinking about life and the world and materialism and money. 
Help us, Lord, cultivate in us a generous heart. Give for us in our minds and the example of this widow and help us to be challenged uh, in these areas ourselves. It's in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close with a final song and you guys will be able to get out and enjoy the beautiful day.